This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. And this week, I sit down with Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher. We discuss women and how they are portrayed in the Word of God. But beyond that, we discuss the value and the worth God has placed on women that is often missed when we only read small portions of Scripture or when we are not reading Scripture with a proper cultural context. This is one of those conversations that will expand your understanding of Scripture. It will also expand your understanding of God's heart for disciple-making and just how much women are included in that process from beginning to end. If you have been listening to Grace Enough for several episodes and have benefited from the conversations here, I would like to ask you to consider supporting the show for as little as $5 a month or a one-time donation. Visit graceenoughpodcast.com and click on the purple coffee mug. I would also like to thank recent supporters of the show, Karen Charney, Thomas Fortson, Nancy Bayless, and my mother-in-law, Sandy Cullum. Several of you have supported me in ways beyond finances, and I want you to know that I am forever grateful. Okay, friends, let's start this week's episode with Eric and Elise discussing the worth and value of women. Good morning, Eric and Elise. Welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. Before we get to talking to the book the two of you co-wrote, Worthy, Celebrating the Value, the Worth of Women, um, take a moment, introduce yourself to our listeners, tell everybody a little bit about what you do and your family and all the things. Elise, why don't you go first? Yeah, thanks. Um, So I am married. Actually, tomorrow is our 47th wedding anniversary. Congrats. That's awesome. Basically proves there is a God. (laughs) And, (laughs) and um, so uh, I live in Southern California with my husband, Phil, we have three married children and six grandchildren. And uh, what I do basically is, um, well, I do a lot of podcasting with Eric and um, also I'm a writer, uh, I have, and I have a degree in biblical counseling, which has sort of morphed into a, a writing career, which I never really started out with, or started out trying to get a writing career. I've just mm-hmm. ended up with one. Yeah. So I guess that's what I do. Yeah, you've authored several books, so you're definitely a writer at this point. (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny. You know, some people think about themselves as a writer. I don't. I sort of feel like, ah, there's something I want to say, so I say it. I don't. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. Eric, how about you? Yeah, um, I'm Eric Shoemaker, and I live in Ames, Iowa, with my wife, Jenny, of 22 years and 11 months. Oh, almost there. (laughs) Next year will be 23. That's right. So that's about half the time Elise has been married. So she knows twice as much about marriage as me. (laughs) Twice as much about everything. (laughs) Twice as much about sin in marriage than you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm trying to catch up. We all are. (laughs) So uh, um, I'm the father. Jenny and I have, uh, I was going to say seven. No, we have five children. Uh, ranging from 18 to nine, our oldest just graduated high school, start wow. college in the fall. And so, yeah, having an 18 year old is, it's just an amazing thing, especially when you're only 23. So I, I don't know how that happens. It's a miracle. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. They'll, they'll celebrate him and venerate him as a saint that's someday right. or me as a saint. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. That's our podcast, the saint and the sinner. That's what worthy's all about. So oh, you can pick goodness. which That's one awesome. of us is which. Um, 
I'm also an associate pastor, and I co-host the Worthy Podcast with Elise. Uh, I write books and write worship songs, and um, we just got our new dog. So that's What'd you fun. get? We got a Maltipoo, and he is the cutest thing ever. So, Oh, my yeah. goodness. We got one back in September. Is that right? August or September? And oh, those first few months, they're so tiresome, but they're so cute. Oh, man. Yeah. He gets a lot of attention. Yeah, of course. I mean, especially with kids around. Yeah. Eric, I want you to talk about how your approach in shepherding women in the local church, how has it been shaped over the years? And, you know, how can male ministry leaders view women in the church as partners in sharing and spreading the gospel? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, as for how my view of women and approach to shepherding women in the church developed, it was sort of like the Worthy Podcast, you know. Um, I came to learn I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Although my biggest mistake is that I thought I did, you know. Um, Coming out of seminary, we received nothing in seminary about how to shepherd women and about women in the church other than doctrine on what they couldn't do and that we should be really careful about how we hung out with women uh, so that no accusations could come against us. And that was that was about the limit of what we had in terms of training for shepherding women. And so my approach to pastoring was basically making sure that uh, the lines were you know, protected on where women could and couldn't be. And unfortunately, what went, it went beyond that to how things appeared. And so Mm. you didn't even want to give the appearance that you were encroaching upon anything like that. And as long as that was protected, then, you know, what did women have to be concerned about? And so I really, at one point began to feel uneasy about how, Uh, this theology was being practiced and applied and feeling like uh, a lot of it went beyond what the Bible had to say. And, Mm -hmm. and so I really just longed for um, to go back through the Bible and see what it had to say about women sort of with as much of fresh eyes as I could. And with the attitude of saying, wherever there's no limitations, then we should just throw the doors wide open. Like, uh, we, we don't need to fence any laws for fear that the Holy Spirit can't sanctify his people. And so I began by just listening uh, to the Bible and then listening to women and asking them, what's your experience been like in the church? And, you know, I've had some women who've said, I have had nothing but great experiences from the churches I've been in and the men in my life, and then others for whom it's been the exact opposite. And uh, it just opened my eyes a lot to um, ways that women are treated differently and silenced and left out uh, in ways that have absolutely nothing to do with the Bible or any disputed passage in the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's just really sad. And so, What Worthy gave me the opportunity to do, uh, particularly in working with Elise, who's been ministering to women in the church for about as long as I've been alive. And so she's heard it and seen it all. And so to be able to study through the Bible with that sort of real life wisdom uh, was just a, a, a really great experience. And it's made me realize that from cover to cover, the Bible is a story about how God has planned to uh, display his glory on earth through men and women together. Mm -hmm. And so that has really influenced my view as a pastor of saying, what does it look like for men and women to be partners uh, together in God's work? Was there a second half to that question? Yeah. So the other part, I mean, that was a great explanation because it does flow right into uh, what are some things that you've done? And Elise, you know, you may be able to even speak into this to help male ministry leaders 
Hmm. live into that, to partner with women. So I think one is just making women seen and heard. And I mean that just literally, like in our worship service, uh, we have started having women who are our service leaders, you know, on our worship team that are reading parts of our, the leaders parts of our spoken liturgy. And we have women doing the scripture reading. And so every Sunday you're going to not only see a woman up front, but you're going to hear her. And then sometimes our welcome and announcements are done by uh, female ministry leaders in the church. So the whole church can get to know them. And then just trying to ask our leaders and our elders and ask myself, whenever we're going to do something like, have we talked to any women about this? And then second of all, is there any reason a woman shouldn't be included in this? And those two questions like will challenge your assumptions and can correct a lot of a lot of errors and then just making myself available to meet with and talk with women without the feeling that if you're going to come see pastor eric then you have to have your husband along with you and that's just formed a lot of good friendships with women and when you become friends with each other a whole lot more ministry is able to happen uh, Mm -hmm. than when you just kind of view each other from afar. Yeah, as more of a threat. Elise, do you have anything that you wanted to add to that? One of the things that one of our pastor does is that he, whenever he's going to preach on a subject or a passage, he sends me as well as some other women in the congregation, I think in men, but women, uh, the passage and asks for my insight mm, wow. into the passage and, and particularly, you know, general insights, but also, is there anything as a woman that you would want me not to miss, which, you wow. know, yeah, that's, that's really wonderful. And then also, you know, I've seen uh, several churches that have uh, what they call elder advisors, female elder advisors, who uh, are not ordained as elders, but they are included in every meeting they can possibly be included in to give advice and wisdom to the pastors. Okay, so if you want to hold to male ordination, male only ordination, then there are ways that women can be speaking without crossing any sort of line that you might feel should be there. Yeah, it's so true. Well, and that's something too that I want to go ahead and mention as we continue to dive in is that at the end of the book, you guys do include a couple of appendixes that kind of speak into that. You know, how can a pastor communicate with a woman leader? Um, What, I can't remember exactly what y'all call it, but it's like good pastors want to say to women. Um, And I appreciated that so much. And some of the reviews and other things that I read said the same. And so um, I just want to mention that for people who are listening, that it's an invaluable resource. And so Elise, you know, you have, and you've kind of already spoken into this a little bit, but you have written, you know, over 25 books for Christian life, for daily living. Um, Why Worthy? Why this book now? Well, first of all, Worthy represents my ongoing trajectory into into my understanding of scripture. Mm -hmm. So uh, several years ago, I began to be more aware of Uh, Not that I had been unaware of what was going on in the church as far as women were concerned uh, before that, but I became more aware of the fact that um, I thought that women were being treated in ways and disrespected in ways that, um, that were important to point out. And so uh, I, I became aware of that, but then as Eric and I, uh, and it was really Eric's seminal work at the very beginning that Uh, set me on a path to really go through scripture and now begin to read it from the perspective of how important are women in the history of redemption? How important are women in the church? So, you know, 
I think probably like any writer and for sure writers who write over decades, you can trace sort of a trajectory. You know, we start out here, we end up here. So, I mean, there's some things in books I've written before. I wouldn't nuance the way I did then. So hopefully that demonstrates a, a growth, but also, um, I've, I've really come to see that the, the power of the gospel to free us also frees women to walk into an identity, not particularly as the appendage of their husband or their children or some male, but rather as uh, their identity as uh, redeemed and justified daughters of the king that God is very, very interested in using. You know, it's really interesting. I was reading something that someone wrote recently that uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, you have all sorts of descriptions of how women looked. You know, uh, Rachel was beautiful, Leah, not so much. All these different women who they're talked about in, as far as their beauty is concerned. Mm -hmm. And they're also talked about as far as how many children they had. Mm -hmm. that's, that's Old Testament. New Testament, you've got the only two women, aside from Lois and Eunice, but the only two women who are really talked about as having children are Mary and Elizabeth, mm -hmm. and then nothing, and there's a lot of women in the Old Testament and New Testament, nothing is said about what they look like, how desirable they might be to a male, and nothing is said about what children they have. Why? Mm -hmm. Because women's value as not being an appendage of a man, but rather, but rather the bride of Christ, that's where our identity needs to be found. Yeah. And when I think about, you know, the vine and the branches, I just think both male and female have been grafted in. We're not like mm -hmm. the extra branch on the branch. You know, I mean, I'm in this... <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah, <laughs> same language as appendage. I'm thinking about like I was out um, pruning my tomatoes yesterday and kind of just thinking about it. I mean, goodness, gardening is such a great picture. It's no wonder people yes. constantly use it. It's not just because it's yes. biblical. If you actually do it, you're like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, and I was thinking about how we're all grafted in through Christ. It's not like right. I'm the offshoot of yes. the man. Yes. Um, and it is really a beautiful picture when you, you really pay attention to it if you are a gardening person. And so that's a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation that we could have. But something that I do love that you guys do is you begin the book from creation, fall, wisdom, you know, the history of Israel, and you go all the way through even ending with what's the worth and value of a woman in the 21st century church. And so from some of the texts that you guys study and write about, what are a few of them that you would say Christians read and we kind of just miss it? Like we miss seeing the value of women in this text. Now, I know that can be said actually for a lot of them. Um, so just pick a few. And I would love to hear from both of you. I think I'll just start with the creation narrative. I think that is often very misunderstood. And it's, you know, what Elise was just saying about how women are spoken about, you know, in the Old Testament, they are, you know, mentioned in context of what children they're given. Um, and then in the New Testament, they're not. And we can probably say the same thing, I think, about men that, you know, look at the number of men that are mentioned um, in terms of the children they have. And then those in the New Testament, how often are their children? Well, what's going on? You know, um, you look at the original uh, cultural mandate given in Genesis 1, where it says that male and female, he created them in the image of God, he created them, and they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion. Well, that, that great commission in Genesis 1 gives way to another great commission in, in Matthew 28. And no longer is the focus on having children. Why? Mm -hmm. Well, because the promised child is born. Yeah. That's what's going on in the Old Testament as we look at people in relation to children is not because that's their, their worth, but because we're looking forward to the child. Mm -hmm. 
And, and once the child is there, we're now focused on filling the earth with disciples mm -hmm. and teaching them to obey everything that child has commanded. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what it means to exercise dominion is to live under his rule. And so if we see the creation narrative as establishing that women are here, you know, it's not good for the man to be alone. And if we read that as, well, that's because he can't have babies without a woman there to help him fill the earth and her value is to be a baby maker, then when the, the baby gets here, there's no reason for the woman to be around anymore mm. because we don't need babies anymore. And uh, because the child's been born to redeem us. Let's just wrap up the whole show. But what we see in the New Testament is that is in no way close to the truth because women continue to have a, a key part in seeing disciples born and brought under the dominion of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so that whole Genesis 2 passage, I think, is so often missed and abused because just to think about the fact God said, looks at his creation and says, it is not good, is, is just mind-blowing after, you know, a chapter of a chorus saying, and he saw it and it was good and it was good and it was good. Like mm -hmm. there's something, you know, record scratch, stop, like what's going on? And it's not good for the man to be alone. And so if men would realize, you know, we, that passage gets taught and, and then it's like, Men, now see how valuable she is. She needs to be protected by you, and she needs to be led by you. The whole focus of that passage is you need her, <laughs> and you can't accomplish God's purposes without her. Mm. And, and, and when it comes to partnering with her, he leaves his father and his mother. He sacrifices his safety, his comfort, his family, his everything, to be united with her mm. and, and and so it's it's that whole passage is not about how much she needs him but about how much he needs her and what he's willing to sacrifice to have her mm. and now paul makes some application from the order of creation there um and that application is valid and it's and it's meaningful um but its ultimate fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ who teaches us how to be united to one another. And as men, that means we, we lay down our lives and we're willing to die to serve her mm -hmm. because that's what it looks like for Christ to love his bride is to be the world's greatest servant. And we just totally miss all that. And I think we we mess up all that yeah. and it's to the detriment of the church because it didn't stop being true that it's not good for the man to be alone. Mm. And as much as we cannot complete, could not complete the creation mandate without women, we cannot fulfill the great commission without women. And that's exactly what we've been left on earth to do. True, that's powerful. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to say about that, Elise? Huh? huh? I got nothing. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I learned uh, from Eric was really, uh, even in the way we've painted Eve, and, you know, the first person who has a, a speech of faith, a confession of faith, mm. uh, after the fall is Eve. And actually, you hear it again from her. You know, a few chapters later, a chapter later. And so what you have is, you know, what we do with uh, particularly women in, let's say, the Old Testament or even women in the New Testament. You know, everybody wants to cast stones at Mary Magdalene or everybody wants to wonder about the woman at the well. Listen, uh, these are women who uh, God used powerfully. And we need to be careful about the way that we speak about women like Bathsheba and to begin to look at the life she was living, why, in fact, she was bathing 
Um, she was being righteous. It was after her menstrual period and she was doing what she needed to do. Bathsheba bathing is not Bathsheba, the seductress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you've I got, know, Mike, could we uh, get some cultural context there? Um, everybody yeah. didn't have a three-story house with a bathroom that had tinted <laughs> windows um, yes. so that you couldn't see in. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, you know, you've got Bathsheba, you've got uh, Tamar, who um, was seeking to be righteous. Here's a Canaanite woman who's undoubtedly been abused by her two uh, husbands. And what she's going to do is she's going to raise up seed for her husband's name. Mm. So she's going to be a righteous woman. And she knows the character of her father-in-law. So she's going to take a horrible risk And uh, who knows how degrading that was to her to have a a sexual relation with Judah. But again, over and over again, we've got to stop reading these stories. And I think that one of the with these with eyes that say uh, women are women are seductresses. And this is something we've come away with. Eric and I both have. There are really basically three lies that are being told all the time. They're ubiquitous about uh, women in scripture. Number one, they're seductresses. And so you have to be really careful about them. Number two, they are always trying to usurp authority. And so you have to, you know, be really careful of them. And number three is they are easily deceived. I can't tell you how many times over my Christian walk, I've heard some sort of message like that. Those three lies have to be broken. They have the power of them has to be broken. And so, but because the church has so much bought into them, then we read stories of women in scripture and automatically paint them with that brush. And then also sadly paint one another with the same brush. Well, and that is, and I've said it on here before, the value too of knowing the whole of scripture and taking the time to not just read the one chapter, the, the one book, um, mm-hmm. because, the, you know, going into this next question, I was reading, I'd read the book and I was reading some reviews and I, somebody loved it, but then all, y- y- you all know, you all, yeah. I don't know if you read reviews, but this one girl brought up a good perspective because I've heard it from my own friends. Eric, you kind of, touched on it a little bit already is we have this old Testament view where we do see women demeaned a lot. Um, we see things like, you know, only males included in Israel census. Um, an unmarried woman could be forced to marry her rapist. There's these, these weird things, women of various ages, um, over time, it's like they're valued at half of what men were valued. So we see that, but we cannot look at what God's redemption story is based on the history of Israel in the Old Testament. And so thinking biblically, how do you address those verses with people when you think through particularly the women that you wrote about in the New Testament? You know, when you read the Old Testament case law, when you read the law in the Old Testament, um, you can come at it from a 21st century uh, American woman's perspective, or you can come at it from the perspective of someone who lived in the ancient Near East. For instance, when we say that a woman is forced to marry her rapist, that's the wrong way to say that. Mm. The right way to say it is the rapist would be forced to marry the woman. And that law, even though that sounds absolutely repulsive to us, to them, that was a protection for the woman so that a guy couldn't rape a woman and then just walk away and not have responsibility to her. So again, you know, we've got to start, we've, we've got to read the, those laws from the perspective. And I mean, I, I believe God is loving and sovereign and good, and that he loves women. So when I read those laws, I have to say, all right, that law is given 
for the sake of the woman. So in other words, you know, sometimes people talk about, yeah, well, uh, divorce was easy, easy for guys in those days. And yes, and in, in fact, it was, but a male could only divorce a woman by giving her a certificate of divorce, which meant that he had to do it legally he had to write it down and he couldn't just say she ran off. She ran off. You know, what we have to remember is, uh, you know, those laws made sense and protected women in the culture in which those women were living, which they had no rights. You want to say, well, okay, a woman had less value than a man. Okay. But what they were looking at, you know, you got to remember women weren't working outside the right. home. And you're talking about how many years a male was able to provide for his household. So again, you know, um, if we're going to read the Old Testament case law, we need to not read it as 21st century women. Well, and real quick to add to that, one of the most wonderful things that I have listened to on a podcast, and I wish I could remember the name of it right now, is they were talking about how we're so caught up in, you know, this is a patriarchal, you know, set up. But so often with Israel, it was actually actually patrilineal where you have, God had to choose somebody to give the rights to the land to. He had to choose somebody to be the one that things got passed down to. And it just happened to be that he chose males. Males were not supposed to lord it over people. They were supposed to be responsible for passing that on from generation to generation to make sure that people were taken care of. The abuse we see is the fall of man, not God's poor design right. for the way things should be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead, Eric. Well, there's several things that I would want to say about the Old Testament law. And you mentioned earlier, like the importance of reading in the context of the whole Bible from beginning to end. And it's not just our theology of women that we need to have straight when we go back to the old covenant law. It's even our theology of covenants. Yeah. And you know, one of my favorite passages is second Corinthians three, where Paul is dealing with the nature of the old covenant mm. and where he's talking about, you know, you know, that scene where Moses, you know, he would go in and talk face to face with God and he would come out and his face would be glowing. And then he would cover his face with a veil until it stopped glowing, you know, until he went in again. And Paul says the reason that he did that was so that the the Israelites would not see what was coming to an end. And in other words, the reason his face glowed and then slowly faded was because the old covenant law was going to slowly fade and its glory mm. was going to end. And so that tells us that from the very beginning, God intended the covenant at Sinai to be temporary. It was not meant to last forever because mm -hmm. it was going to give way to the new covenant. Mm. And so that means he intended that law at Sinai to be a temporary covenant with a, with a temporary law that would govern his people during this period up and until... Uh, this new covenant comes because they can't keep the old covenant. And so with Christ, uh, with the birth of the son, and by the way, why does he pick men? Because he's going to have, he's going to give us his son right. and his son is going to inherit everything. Mm. And so when that son is born and he fulfills the law and he inherits everything, that law comes to an end because Christ has fulfilled it. And now there's a new covenant, and in that new covenant, there is neither male nor female, free or slave, you know, Jew or Gentile. But anyone who is in Christ is a son. They are an inheritor, and they have equal standing before the Lord. Mm. Then the other thing I want to say, just to, just to really back up Elisa's point, and I think it proves her point, is that... Jesus says the whole law can be summarized in two commands. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Which means we have to go to every one of those commands about women that we think devalue them and are unkind or, or lead to their abuse and ask the question, how in that context is this loving to my neighbor? Mm. And that's what Elise is getting at. This is love 
in that place and time. It's, it's a great improvement and it protects women and it values women. And, you know, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And so if Jesus is not a misogynist, then the law can't be misogynistic. Mm. Otherwise, Jesus doesn't fulfill it. Dang, that's really good. <laughs> I know, right? We're doing the mic drop. I think it re will resonate so much to hear we are inheritors. That's why the language of son is used. It is not to say that man is better than no. woman. It's to say we are now co-heirs with Christ. Amen. Mm, that's powerful. Well, let's talk about Paul. <laughs> let's talk about Paul because, you know, everybody's got their beef with, with Paul. I mean, he definitely, we can paint him as a suppressor of women. Um, and that's a lot of, because like you were talking about at the beginning, Eric, the church can be so focused on what women can't do and why you should stay away from them. Um, and a lot of that comes from the first Timothy two passage and the first Corinthians 11 passage, but you guys write a lot about Paul and Lydia and the other women and how they founded the church. They supported the church in Europe, flesh that out a little bit, give some clarity to why Paul is not just a woman hater. Yeah. Um, I, Paul is not a woman hater. Mm -hmm. And when you begin to, um, when you begin to really look at his ministry and the people, for instance, that he uh, expresses thanks to and for at the end of the book of Romans, in Romans 16, I think it's something like 10 of the 29 people listed at the end of Romans, uh, at the end of Romans, when Paul is greeting different people that he's thankful for, uh, 10 of them are women. You have Phoebe, who is a deacon and is a woman who was uh, tasked with one of the most, with a delivery and probably reading aloud uh, one of the most important letters that have ever, has ever been written, the letter to the Romans. Um, you've also got Paul working with the women in uh, Philippi. Well, of course, you've got Lydia, who, you know, it's interesting to me, Paul is praying about where he should go next to uh, preach the gospel. And uh, he has a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come over, we need help. That word help is important there. Come over, we need help. And so Paul and his uh, traveling companions go to Philippi and they're assuming they're going to find some men. You know, the man said, come and help us. What they find instead is a group of women mm -hmm. who are praying. And uh, the Bible says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe. And then what happens is she's the first baptized convert in all of Europe. And because she is probably single, uh, she was, I, I, my, our guess would be she was a widow and she was a business person. Um, she prevailed upon them to basically start the church in her house. All right. So you can't say, you know, or even how Paul talks about, Priscilla, with Priscilla and Aquila, you can't say that Paul was against women being in, uh, in ministry. And what you do with those passages, you know, in the Timothy passage, there's, you know, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14. At the very least, you need to read them from the context of a man who was very comfortable talking about being in ministry with women. Mm -hmm at least from there, you know, uh, at least from saying, okay, Paul talks over and over again about how uh, Priscilla was knew scripture so well and that she would teach uh, Apollos. Yeah. So you've got to say, all right, whatever is happening in those passages, and I'm not going to get into that, but whatever is passage, happening in those passages, we need to say, all right, what do we actually see Paul doing? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, it's what we, we say that about Jesus all the time. Mm -hmm. And so why is it that we're so quick to not say that about Paul? Right. Yeah. Eric. Reading Paul is, is just like reading the old covenant law. If you can start from a certain place and make him look awful. Um, But, you know, context is king and reading him as a whole is really important. And, you know, those passages that you mentioned that are, that get Paul in trouble and are controversial. Just one thing I'd ask people to really notice and that I had never considered before. Both those contexts are what I would call covenant contexts. One of those is in the local church body and the other is in marriage. And when he gives those instructions, what are sometimes called roles, um, he's pointing back to a reality in that exists between Christ and the church. Mm. And, and he's wanting that to be seen. He's not talking about the inherent uh, constitution of men or women and who's smarter or who's more able, uh, you know, who's more gullible, etc. He's, he's talking about something to do with the covenant between Christ and his church mm. in a way to, that he doesn't speak about men and women outside the church. And so that's extremely significant. And and when I say, even when I say church, you know, I think he's talking about a local church and he even limits that, I think, to very limited places uh, if there's any, lim- if there's limitations, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's very restrained. And so what we see him, even in 1 Corinthians 11, we all get up, you know, about what he says about creation order and head coverings and all that. But when you look at the context, what he's talking about is women prophesying and praying in the local church assembly, in their worship service. And what he doesn't say is, well, tell them to stand down. Mm. He says... No, here in Corinth, in this particular culture, it's it's important that they dress in a certain way to send a certain message. And he doesn't tell them to be quiet. Um, he expects that the voice of women is going to be heard, uh, essentially from the platform, <laughs> during worship service. And so, whatever we want to think about head coverings, and who can preach and who can be an elder we have to ask the question would our church service meet the expectations of paul that there's going to be a woman's voice heard Mm. participating in the service for all to see and all to hear and if not what biblical justification do we have for not meeting paul's expectations and and then i would also just caution whatever he says about marriage in the church we have let let's let's look at actually what he does say all he tells us about what it means for a man to be the head of his wife is that he should be laying down his life Mm -hmm. to be unified with her because she is his flesh it any view of being a husband that is not that entirely is going beyond what Paul is saying. Mm -hmm. And we need to be very careful in how we justify that. Um, And the other thing I'd just say, really to to echo what Elise said about what it looks like for Paul to do ministry, I I just want to read a couple verses from Philippians 4. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, I knew about that passage for a long time. And the only thing I knew about it was, well, there were two women fighting in the church. Surprise, surprise. That's what women do. You know, they they have arguments and they're divisive and whatever. I never paid attention to what followed. And Paul says, yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul doesn't view these these two women as two contentious and divisive people who just need to be dealt with. So the church isn't ruined. And he says, these, these are my, my coworkers. Wow. They fought 
And that word for contend is like, they went to war. Mm. They went and did battle. And he doesn't say they backed me up in battle. He says they contended at my side. These are equals with the Apostle Paul going out to war for the sake of the gospel. They're not just sitting on the sidelines sending you know care packages to the troops. They are the troops. Mm-hmm. My, I mean, this is a little bit of a different aspect of Paul and what he preaches, but one of the ways that I see that we make things so culturally relevant to us is even when we talk about the way he talks about marriage, because why don't we go around chanting? Well, he tells us all we'd be better off if we were single. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Yeah. And yes. I mean, I say that because I'm like, we see this, this is like not totally off topic, but we see this Christian nationalism so much. And I know it's not right. the same thing. But we do have to be so, so careful, pay attention to the fact that culturally we take things out of context because we want it to benefit our church. And whether it's right or it's wrong, whether it's on purpose or it's on accident, it is so important to see that we can take certain things and be cheerleaders behind those things. And it's not what's being said. Yeah. And, 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 you know, to get back to what we said earlier about childbearing, why does Paul say... I wish everyone was single. I wish you were all single because the child's been born. The seed has come. And if you're single, you can now devote yourself full time to making disciples Mm -hmm. instead of making and raising babies. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've made a lot of babies in my home. And, and I can tell you, they take a lot of energy Yeah. and raising them is discipleship and I value kids and I value marriage and it's an absolutely good thing, but we build our churches around marriage Mm -hmm. sometimes almost more than we build it around the great commission. So true. And we're missing something huge there. I don't even know what to say, (laughs) except amen. (laughs) So when we are thinking about the gospel of Jesus and how now our greatest purpose is to be living out, to be spreading that gospel, to be making disciples, what is your greatest hope from this book for the people who decide to pick it up who which I would encourage it is one of those books too where you don't have to get overwhelmed and read from cover to cover right away you can say right now I'm studying um you know the book of Genesis so I'm going to read chapters one and two right now I'm studying about Paul so I'm going to read about women in the church um and everything in between and so what was your hope um what is your hope for this book My hope for the book, I guess, would be really twofold. Uh, My hope for the book would be that women would see uh, whether or not they fit the uh, stereotypical gender roles Mm -hmm. that have been um, propagated in the evangelical church, whether or not they fit those roles, that their primary identity has to do with being in relationship with Jesus Christ and being uh, both a son and a bride. Mm -hmm. So that's what I am. Actually, all people, all Christians are both sons and brides. Amen. So for, for the women who read it, I would pray you, you are more than you are more than your relationship with some earthly person, although obviously those relationships are important. You are more than that. And God can use you and you don't have to fit that uh, straight jacket stereotype of if you're going to be a godly woman, then you have to look like X. Mm-hmm. Let's not do that. I'm pretty sure Lydia didn't look like X or Yodia and Syntyche didn't look that way. I'm pretty sure that Phoebe didn't look that way. So let's not tell our daughters or Mm -hmm. our sisters in Christ 
that they need to be that if they want to be great. Great. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Eric? I think just from the standpoint of being a man and a pastor, you know, what I would want to say to pastors is I don't want you to go away from worthy and say, oh man, we really need to empower women and invite women into ministry because you don't because Christ has already put them in the ministry. When he gave the great commission, he has commanded and commissioned every Christian woman to the work. They don't need to be invited in because it's not your invitation to give. Mm. Christ has given it. And it's more than an invitation. He's given the command. And they don't need to be empowered because Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will come and give you power to be my witnesses. Women are already in and they're already empowered. And what we as the church and so often men need to do is to stop grieving the spirit and hindering Christ by putting up stumbling blocks and closing doors and making it really difficult for women to do what they're already commanded and empowered to do. Mm. And to realize that just as a wife is one flesh with her husband, like to harm her is to harm himself, it's not good for man to be alone. And when we shut out and oppose and hinder the partnership of women on the battlefield of the gospel, then we hurt not only the cause of the gospel, we harm ourselves. Wow. And so it's not a call for us to invite and empower women. It's a call for us to stop being disobedient and to repent. Hmm. Wow. Elise, Eric, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. If there's somebody that does want to connect with you guys, what's your favorite social app that you hang out on? (laughs) Uh, I think, well, I, I'm only, I'm mostly only on the Twitter machine. Eric, I think the same's true for you. I tweet sometimes. Yeah, so I know. You can follow me there. Sometimes every hour. <laughs> oh, listen, I I can't hang with Twitter. I mean, I get on there and read, but I'm not clever enough. But um, thank you guys so much for thank being you, here. Um, I'm so I really am grateful not only for this conversation but just for the work that you're doing. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. It's been wonderful. I would love to know if your understanding of scripture. And God's design for women was expanded today. Send me a message on Instagram, Facebook, or an email at graceenoughpodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear what resonated with you. And visit graceenoughpodcast.com. Click the purple coffee mug to help me continue creating episodes of the podcast week in and week out. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.